Hi, it's Lynn Galadner, and welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm a writer and entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've learned that we succeed through inspiration from storytelling and deep and mutually beneficial relationships. This show began in 2018 after my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I wanted a way to capture his stories and record his insights. It's grown since then to share stories of how people around the world make meaning from very ordinary pursuits. Now I focus on sharing the stories of writers, authors, and those in the world of publishing to learn how and why we create stories that help us make meaning from the mundane. I'm a former journalist and marketing entrepreneur, and I've been teaching writing for more than two decades. As a writing coach, I help authors build their brands and share their words. I've had eight books published already, and I just finished my second novel, so stay tuned for news about when and where you can read it. If you'd like to write with me, check out my offerings at lynngaladner.com, and you'll find more episodes of this podcast at makemeaning.org, as well as on every podcast platform you can think of. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to the Make Meaning Podcast, where you'll find stories of courageous people daring to share their talent with the world. Now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2023. If you've always wondered what it would be like to attend a writer's retreat, this is the year to do it. And lucky for you, I'm adding four retreats to my calendar this year. I'd love to write with you at one of them. So there are two weekend retreats here in Michigan. There's one in Nova Scotia in July, and then I'll be back on Mackinac Island in September with writingworkshops.com. If you'd like to find out more, go to lynngalodner.com and click on the retreats page. And if one of them interests you, register now because they'll fill up really quickly. I hope to write with you this year. Thanks for listening. Today on the Make Meaning Podcast, I have the honor of speaking with Tammy Pastorek, a native of Western Pennsylvania who grew up in a family of steelworkers, coal miners, and Eastern European immigrants. This is important because Tammy is the author of Beneath the Veil of Smoke and Ash, a novel set in Pittsburgh during the golden age of steel. It's a story of Eastern European immigrants and the grit they must bring to their new life in the supposed land of opportunity. Currently, Tammy lives on Maryland's eastern shore with her husband, two children, and chocolate Labrador retriever. She began her career as an investigator with the National Labor Relations Board and later worked as a paralegal and German teacher. Tammy holds degrees in labor and industrial relations from Penn State University and German language and literature from the University of Delaware. Tammy, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I have to start by pointing out some common ground on which we stand. So first of all, my husband is an archivist for the American Federation of Teachers focused on archives relating to teacher unions, which I thought you might find interesting. Um, He's from a big labor and union family, and we've spent many summers at the beach in Delaware since he grew up in the Delmarva region. Wow. Yes, we have much common ground. I know you studied there and you live in Maryland now, so very small world. It is. It certainly is. Let's just start by diving in. Your novel is so gorgeous and detailed. Thank you. And I can see from your background that it was inspired by your own family's journey, right? I think it was a family genealogy project that inspired you to write Beneath the Veil of Smoke and Ash. Is that right? It was, um, you know, it it all started actually when I lost my mom's recipe for 
stuffed cabbages, which, mm. you know, we Slovaks call them halupki. Okay. Um, but when I went online to try to find a replacement for the recipe, I went down a rabbit hole and ended up on all of these genealogy websites. Um, and that sort of sparked my interest in researching my family's past. And then a few months later, when I asked my 90 year old grandmother about some of the things I found online on ancestry.com, um, she presented me with, um, some old family photos in a shoebox mm. I had never seen before and mm. started to just tell me all these stories that just all poured out of her. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what got the project rolling. Oh, that's amazing. Did you record her or anything? So you have that, you know what? I wish I had recorded her. I did take lots and lots of notes. Mm -hmm. Um, I did record her saying some things in Lithuanian because her, her parents were Lithuanian. Her husband's parents were Slovak. Um, mm -hmm. so she, she spoke a lot of Lithuanian. So I do have some, some of her speaking Lithuanian on video, but I, oh, wow. I really probably should have recorded the conversation. <laughs> well, you know, we can't go back, but it's just, no, we can't. <laughs> it, it's so, it's such a treasure to, to get these stories. And I always tell my kids who are like in their teens and twenties that, you know, if you can sit with older relatives and just older people and hear their stories. There, there's just so much wisdom there. And of course, when it's somebody you're related to, it tells you so much about your past. It's it's amazing. It, it really is. And I think one of my biggest regrets is I didn't ask enough questions um, when I had more time because my grandmother passed away just a few months after we had that talk. Mm. And I think the interesting thing about my family is, and it's, it's both sides of my um, family. It's my dad's side and my mom's side both have immigrants from Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. They didn't talk a whole lot about their past, I think, because when they came to America, there was such um, huge anti-immigrant sentiment that yeah. they just wanted to blend in. You know, they didn't want to speak the language anymore. They didn't want to show anybody outside the house all of their customs. So they had a tendency to kind of like leave everything behind and assimilate. And so no one really talked about the family history or culture. The only thing that they really tried to keep alive were the, um, the foods. Like we yeah. definitely had a lot of ethnic foods growing up. Hmm. You know, I, I don't want to get political, but I wonder, I mean, obviously this immigrant question has always plagued our country. Mm -hmm. And I, I too come from Eastern European and Russian uh, roots. And I wonder if when you set out to write this, did you think about like making a statement about um, you know, how Americans perceive immigrants or was that really not on your radar? You know what? It wasn't on my radar because I, when I sat down to write, I didn't have an outline. I didn't even know what I was going to do with a story. I just knew that I wanted to go back to the early 1900s, the time when my great grandparents immigrated to America and try to, to recreate that world pay tribute to their sacrifices. And so I just thought, you know, let me find out about the history of the period. Mm -hmm. The irony is that I started this book in 2014 okay. and probably I must've been maybe three quarters of the way through when the 2016 election cycle rolled around. Mm -hmm. And of course, immigration was such a huge topic and, you know, it got very heated and very ugly in a lot of ways. And that's when I realized, oh, wow, like this book actually, you know, may send a bit of a message. And I didn't change the way that I wrote it, but mm -hmm. I just knew that when it came time to talk about the book and to promote it, that issue of immigration and xenophobia was going to be central to a lot of my, my talks. And then it really, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, I feel like, this book makes people more empathetic towards immigrants and it also mm -hmm. shows them that what immigrants today are facing is not all that different from what our great grandparents faced at the turn of the 20th century. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about your writing background. Like, have you always written? And like, what are your earliest memories of, of writing creatively? Well, you know, honestly, I was not much of a creative writer growing up. I read a ton. I loved books. I was always, you know, immersed in some sort of a novel. And I wrote for the high school yearbook. I was the editor. So I wrote Mm -hmm. in a more journalistic sense. And then whenever I went to college and studied labor relations, I did a lot of legal writing at the National Labor Relations Board. Mm -hmm. Um, But as far as creative writing, that really didn't happen until, you know, I started this project. I mean, I I dabbled a little bit in college because I had a few courses that required me to write a couple Mm -hmm. of short stories, but nothing, nothing quite as large as a novel. I wasn't somebody who wrote poetry or short stories on my own. This kind of just, it's an accident. (laughs) (laughs) A very happy accident, of course. But (laughs) yeah, so, okay. So that even like blows my mind because, you know, so many writers have like always been scribbling since they were little and it's like a dream to write a novel one day. So like, take me through how you you went from hearing your grandmother's stories to choosing to write historical fiction. And then like, you know, when did you know you were like putting together a novel that you wanted to put out in the world? The, the the jump into historical fiction wasn't too bizarre because that's all I read. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. I am a historical fiction junkie. I probably know more about World War II than I should because every <laughs> time I turn to a novel, that's the period I go to. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, I kind of thought, okay, I think maybe I could do this. I know how these stories are structured. It might surprise you though that to get started, I actually bought one of those dummies books, you know, the dummy uh-huh. series. Yeah. And it was how to, um, how to write fiction for dummies. And I literally <laughs> spent like a whole week with that book, scouring it and trying to figure out like how to get started. I pulled out all of my favorite novels off the shelf, spread them out on the floor, looked at all the openings. How did these, you know, how do they open? Like what really cooks a reader and gets them interested in the story. Mm-hmm. And I kind of just did it very slowly and it, it kind of taught myself, but at the same time, it wasn't like it was a complete and total dive with no like background because I have a German degree. And okay. so when I studied German, you know, we did nothing but read novels and short stories and critique them and talked okay. about, you know, the plot, talked about character development, you know, all the different, you know, literary arcs. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I had some background. I just had never tried to write my own story. Hmm. And did you enjoy the process of writing this? I did. I did. I think once, once I kind of got rolling and once I had a, my first critique, because what I had decided to do once I was about... I want to say a quarter of the way through the novel, maybe it was even close to a third of the way through, I hired an editor to look mm-hmm. at it and tell okay. me, am I even like in the ballpark here? Like, is this, is this making sense? Does the story flow? How's my, my style? How's my voice? And she <laughs> had a lot of really good things to say. And so I was like, okay, I'm on the right track. So yeah, it, it was a little bit, you know, tough at first, but once I, you know, got critique and feedback, I felt much more confident. Excellent. That That's so exciting. And it's just really gives our listeners a lot of hope because mm-hmm. everybody wants to write a book, but most people don't. So it's yeah. like seeing that you can do it you and you know, you just sort of put your nose to the grindstone and, and you can get it done. So what was your vision then for this book once you felt that it was finished and you, you know, your editor had gone through it? Um, what was your vision for where it would go? Well, I honestly wanted to get a traditional deal. 
Mm-hmm. I um, I went to several conferences. Um, probably one of the most helpful ones was the San Francisco Writers Conference. I cannot say enough about that, uh-huh. where I talked to a lot of agents and a lot of other writers who who shared their stories with me and shared their plans. And I just felt like because I was so new to the whole industry, I wanted you know an agent and you know a publishing house to hold my hand. Mm-hmm. It turns out I queried for over two years. How many agents did you query over those two years? <laughs> oh, um, I think I queried almost a hundred. Okay. Yeah, I right, contacted cool. almost a hundred agents. And I think out of that hundred, I think maybe 10 actually okay. requested the full manuscript. Okay. Um, and there were a couple of times where I got really, really close to getting a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think it came down to was a lot of agents felt like this was a niche book. That, you know, the subject matter was maybe too narrow, that it it didn't have broad enough appeal. Uh And as you probably know, it's really tough to get a traditional deal as a debut author when you don't have a platform. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a platform. I didn't have a website. I didn't really have much going on on social media. Um, But the thing about that process that was so helpful was that every time I had an agent look at my manuscript, Mm -hmm. I got fresh feedback. I got That's new great. feedback and it really helped me improve the novel. And, and I've kind of come to learn that, you know, just because one agent says I don't like something doesn't mean you should change it. But if you mm-hmm. hear from multiple agents that there's a problem and it's the same problem, then it's time to, to go back and, and fix it. And so mm-hmm. I am so happy that like I didn't just decide to like, you know, hit the send button and publish to Amazon right away when I finished the novel Yeah, because it needed more work. And those agents really helped me get it to where it is now. And I feel very happy with, with the finished product. That's fantastic. So how many, how many revisions did you do before you decided it was done and ready to meet the world? Um, I, I guess I wouldn't say I went through the whole entire novel half a dozen times, but there are definitely chapters in the, in the book that have been revised at least a half dozen times. I mean, I spent, I would say that it took me two and a half years to write the first draft. Now, granted, mm-hmm. I had small children at the time, so writing was not my primary focus. Sure. Um, but I would say that revision process took at least a year and a half. I mean, it wasn't mm-hmm. obviously working every day, but just constantly waiting for more feedback, going back in and changing. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's it was a long process in revising it. But once again, I was new to writing fiction, and so there was a lot of work to be done. Yeah, for sure. And so at what point did you say to yourself, I'm done pitching agents, I'm going to go another route? Um, I think it was like when I got to a hundred, <laughs> when I got to a hundred <laughs> agents and, you know, nobody wanted the book. Uh-huh. Uh, I started to, to look around a little bit at smaller presses and then a writer friend that I met in New York city at a conference. She said, have you thought about she writes press? And I said, mm-hmm. I have, I have no idea who they are. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, she told me a little bit about them and I went to the website and I thought, you know what, let me try this because I didn't want the novel to sit on my computer forever. And I still yeah. didn't quite feel like I knew enough to self-publish. And so okay. I went with She Writes Press because it's that nice halfway, you know, it's the hybrid as they call it, where you yeah. you, you get a lot of help and a lot of handholding, but you get some control over the publishing process. Yeah. So t- take me through that process. Like what I'm not familiar with She Writes Press. I did look it up when I was reading your book. And so tell me a little bit about them and about how that whole process went for you. Well, you basically have to submit like your first 50 pages of your novel mm-hmm. and they take a look at it and decide, you know, if, if you, you know, if you have any talent at all, I mean, sometimes <laughs> they will tell you, this is great. 
you know, let's just push you through the system. Sometimes, you know, if they get a writer who's really struggling, they'll suggest that you maybe hire a coach or hire an editor. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate that my book, because it had gone through so many revisions and I had an editor working with me, it was ready to go. All it really needed was a proofread. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, you know, they take care of the cover design. Uh-huh. They have traditional distribution with Ingram Publisher Services, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So that if you do any kind of book events with Barnes and Noble or like I did some at Penn State, which is where I went to college for the first time, uh-huh. um, they, you know, can just order straight through Ingram because that's an issue with a lot of self-published authors is that mm. it's all about the logistics. How are you going to get the books there? How are you going to handle returns? So that's the, the most convenient thing with um, She Writes Press. They do have traditional distribution. Uh-huh. Um, and of course, they have their their designers who, you know, do the design for the pages and the layouts and they have proofreaders. The editing costs extra. Like if you're somebody who needs a, a solid edit, that will mm-hmm. cost extra. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, they they advise you to hire a publicist as part Mm -hmm. of the process, because you, you know, as well as I do, it's all about exposure. You can't sell a book unless you know, you get it out into the world and people know about it. So I had, I had a publicist and I hired book sparks, which is the parent company of she writes press. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, it's a gorgeous cover. It's it's such a beautiful book. And actually like the way it feels in my hands, I really like, which is like, for me, I'm such an avid reader that, you know, it has to have that feel that you just want to keep holding it, you know? So no, you have a there because she writes press is known for gorgeous covers. Um, their head designer is Julie Metz. She's mm-hmm. phenomenal. And they're known for having very high quality books. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I can't remember who exactly they use um, as their printer, but their books are always gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really, it's really lovely. And so, you know, it's funny, I love that self-publishing and hybrid publishing are options now and that they're Mm -hmm. respected because when I was coming up in my career at the beginning and I I started in journalism, but I really wanted to write books and I've had a bunch of books published, but um, self-publishing there was no hybrid publishing and self-publishing was not respected. It was sort of like your last ditch effort when nobody wanted you. And so I'm so glad to see that that we've evolved and it's that there are options and great writing can get out in the world, you know, because it is so subjective. Like I tell my writing students all the time that someone else's feedback says more about them than necessarily about your writing. But like you said, I love that you said that when you keep getting the same feedback from different people, that's when you want to pay attention and be like, mm-hmm. oh, everybody's noticing this in this chapter or, or whatever it is. But you know, when somebody rejects your book, it's not necessarily because your writing isn't good. It's just that it doesn't work for them at that moment, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, it's really hard to get negative feedback from anybody. And so I wonder how how your feedback has been like from readers, from reviewers, like tell me about, you know, what the response has been and how you've handled the the positive and the negative too. Well, it's actually been overwhelmingly positive. Great. Um, I, I get a lot of, um, obviously Amazon and Goodreads, I get a lot of reviews, but I also get some people who actually go to my website and email me because they're from Western Pennsylvania and maybe, you know, their dad or their brother, or their grandfather worked in either the steel or the coal industry. And their, you know, family was also, you know, from Eastern Europe because that area in Western Pennsylvania has a huge history of Eastern European immigrants coming to it. So huh. it, it really has. So the, the Western Pennsylvania area has, has a huge amount of, um, people who are from Eastern Europe, I should say descendants of Eastern European immigrants. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this book really kind of 
I think it, it touched them because this is, you know, this is not a group of people that are discussed very often. Sure, sure. And so they felt like, oh my gosh, there's somebody else out there who grew up eating, you know, stuffed cabbages and poppy seed rolls. And, you know, uh-huh. we call them kolache in Slovak. Uh-huh. Um, but so there were a lot of people who felt like, you know, this person really, you know, knows my history and my family's history. Yeah, but I yeah. will, I will say this. So there were some very negative reviews. Hmm. Um, a lot of them came from NetGalley because apparently oh. NetGalley's readers are very, very um, critical. I think oh. because they're such avid readers that they tend to maybe be a little bit harsher than the average person. Okay. Um, but so, so the first couple reviews I got on NetGalley were like, you know, three star, two star. And I, you know, I almost had a panic attack. <laughs> I thought, oh, oh. no. But then that was almost like a fluke. Like it was the first couple were like that. And then a couple good ones came along. And then from then on, it was, it was fine. So maybe it was just a, you know, it just, yeah. I got unlucky in the beginning. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my, my reviews have been great. And and I think that um, people really like this book. I think that they feel like they understand immigrants a little better. They feel like they understand the mentally ill a little bit better. Um mm-hmm. And really the goal was always just to kind of tell this wonderful story about this family and how they made a life in America and had, you know, obviously an issue that so many people struggle with is having someone in the family with a mental illness. Uh, So I just think it makes people come away with a little bit more compassion. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you, how you have marketed the book and, you know, both what your publicist brought to that, but also, you know, did you focus more on like uh, book clubs or speaking engagements? Tell me a little bit about the marketing. Well, in the beginning, because my book came out last year, September 21st, 2021, I did um, a couple of different events at bookstores. I Mm -hmm. had mostly, uh, most of them were focused in Western Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I had one, like I said, at Penn State, because that's where I went to college. Uh Um, I obviously, my publicist, one of the things that they did that I felt was really helpful, they had um, bookstagrammers. Yeah. send the book out. And, and that, that was nice. Like for the first month or so, I constantly, you know, got little hits where like, you'd see that one of the, the bookstagrammers posted about my book and then everybody started talking about it. Uh-huh. Um, so that first month I was very, very busy on Instagram. And I also did, um, a blog tour mm-hmm. with a company called the coffee pot, um, mm-hmm. blog tour. And they, they're actually in England, which is interesting, hmm. but you know, they have a market in both, you know, the UK and the US. And okay. so I think I wrote maybe a dozen different um, guest blog posts for a lot of their bloggers. And so the oh. book kind of got out that way. Mm-hmm. And then honestly, I think the thing that's been the most reliable for me have, have been Facebook ads. Mm. I love Facebook ads because I can tailor the demographics because mm-hmm. I've noticed the majority of my readers are women over 65 Hmm. and, and I've played around with the ads. Sometimes I've tried to like, just focus on Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, New York, even in Ontario, because those are areas where there's historically been a lot of um, steel making Mm -hmm. and steel workers. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't seem to do me any good to focus that narrowly. I tend to now just go across the U.S. and Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, But I like the Facebook ads because I can, you know, I can play around and experiment like Amazon doesn't let you do that. Mm. Really cool. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate sure. it. So, um, so what's on your writing horizon? Are you working on another book? Um, do you, is, do you have now an, an expanded vision of, you know, building a library of titles under your name? What's coming I, next? I do. I mean, honestly, I've had this World War II novel that I've been researching, you know, when I have time, because I, I will tell you this, 
it has been a major, major <laughs> project marketing this book. Okay. Um, I didn't realize how much time it would take. And, and part of what complicated things is that I ordered too many printed copies. My publisher and I, you know, got our heads together and, you know, thought we had the right number. And I think it was a little too much because with my demographic of readers being over age 65, uh-huh. I've come to realize that one, they like the ebook because it's cheaper than the paperback. <laughs> and yeah. two, you can enlarge the print on an ebook. Right. And I've actually come to realize that's convenient because my eyesight's starting to go. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's the issue. I, I have had a lot of books in the warehouse that I've really wanted to get rid of. And I've really been cracking away at that over the past year. Like I did a book bob deal in June, uh-huh. which was great. But it obviously, it sent, it's probably sold way more of the ebooks than the printed books. But I think it still at least got the, the book out there so that people could see, you know, that it existed. And some people still, they like their hard copies and it, it did help me sell some yeah. paperbacks. Um, but to, to answer your question, because yeah. I'm sort of rambling here, <laughs> um, I have this World War II novel that I've been researching and it's time for me to dive in. But I read a couple books this summer that are not historicals that I loved so much. One of them was Malibu Rising uh-huh. by um, Taylor Jenkins Reid. Mm-hmm. Such a fun book. Totally not my my normal read. Okay. I loved it so much. I just thought, you know what? It'd be kind of fun to write something juicy and maybe contemporary and, you know, a little bit edgy. Like, you know, yeah. I feel like yeah. I could crank that out, you know, much quicker uh-huh. than this World War II book because the the research is daunting and I still want to do it. But part of me thinks maybe, you know, I should get a book out in a year as opposed to taking a couple years. Yeah. 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 No, I I totally understand. I actually write really fast. And one of the projects on my docket right now is a historical novel, Um, but I'm finishing up. I just finished a novel and I'm revising right now a memoir. So I feel like that's the next project, Mm -hmm. but it, you know, I, I stalled when I needed more research and it's like, I need, even if I, even though I know the cities where it's taking place, I don't know them in the 1900s or in the 1800s even, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like I just don't. And so, so I feel like I have to research that and I have to go, I have to like look at maps and look at buildings and and whatever. So yeah, historical fiction definitely takes longer. What are some of your favorite historical novels or um, historical fiction authors that you've read? I have to tell you, Kristen Hanna is probably my favorite. Okay. Um, my favorites from her winter garden is, is not as well known as, um, the nightingale, uh-huh. but I love winter garden because it's set in Russia. I love Amor Towels. Mm-hmm. I think that a gentleman in Moscow is probably one of the best books I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a thing for Russia <laughs> and then I also, I love, I, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. It's Ruta Sapetis. Okay. So she is what's considered a crossover author. Uh-huh. She writes young adult. But it's so good that so many, um, you know, adults read it. And I don't mm-hmm. feel like it's it's watered down like some novels are for young adults, but it's historical. Uh-huh. And I just this summer read her her novel called The Fountains of Silence. And it is set in Spain in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And it's set against the backdrop of Francisco Franco's regime. Okay. And I, it was shocking to me because I'm such a student of history. I didn't know anything about him. Like, I think he's sort of been hidden because, you know, everybody focuses so much on, you know, World War II and the aftermath that people don't talk about, you know, Spain as much because it was kind of like off on its own, doing its own thing with with Franco. Um, But the book blew me away. It's it's historical. There's culture in there. You know, it feels like a trip to Spain. And then there's this wonderful love story at the center of it. 
Oh, love it. Well, thank you for those recommendations. I will share all of this in the show notes. I have to ask you, I I kind of don't want to, but I'm going to because we're talking historical fiction. Any thoughts about the Outlander series? Yay, nay, anything? You know, the funny thing is I haven't read it. I am so like far behind. I am not much of a Netflix watcher, mainly because my husband sort of claims the TV in the basement and the stuff he watches on Netflix it really isn't anything that appeals to me. And unfortunately <laughs> upstairs, our TV is older and it constantly times out with Netflix. Uh-huh. Um, but I know people who love it and I need to get into it. So I will say that the show is nice, but the books are phenomenal. Are and they? so, yeah, when you read them, especially the first one, but if you do get into them, I would love to hear your thoughts. You'll have to shoot okay. me an email and let I me will. know. I but will. Um, yeah, historical fiction, I don't know. It just, it takes you back and and opens your eyes to a time that you can't know personally. And so it's just such a great journey. And I, I love that I love that you started with that. But I am excited to see, even if you bring us into the present with the contemporary novel, I can't wait to see what comes next. Well, thank you. Thank you. We'll see what happens here. I mean, it's it's time to, to get back in. My kids are in school. I do have a new puppy who's sort of <laughs> taking up a lot of my time during the day. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, I really need to make a decision here. Am I going to, you know, dive into this World War II novel or do something like a little lighter and more fun? So we'll yeah. have to see. Okay. So as our conversation comes to a close, I wonder what advice you might offer to aspiring writers who are listening to the podcast. Be persistent mm-hmm. and don't take no for an answer. And I also think as part of that, you know, it's it's the whole idea of accepting feedback because I think there are a lot of people who finish a novel and they get really excited and they decide they're going to go ahead and self-publish it right away. And I don't think there's anybody who's ever written a book that's ready to go after the first draft. So I just think the idea is, is that it's a collaborative effort, right? You have to have feedback, whether it's from, you know, uh, beta readers, from editors, if you want to query and get it from agents, you have to get multiple sets of eyes on your novel and be ready to hear people's feedback. I love that because it's really true. And I think especially new writers, it, their writing is so tender to them. It's like it's like their child. And, yes. you know, you, you will never see your newborn baby as ugly ever, you know, like it's just not possible. But, um, but the truth is that, you know, you're right, that you totally need feedback. You need fresh eyes on it. You need to, to take your time with it and have that, that open perspective of, you know, we can improve this and I'm open to doing that. But ultimately the, the decision is yours as the author. And so, yes, you want to be open, but you also want to be intuitive with yes. what feels right to the story, but not so tied to the original way you wrote it that you can't be open to other possibilities. And I think another piece that's so important with that is that you're showing your manuscript to the right people. Yes. And, you know, there's so many times that people are in a writing workshop and the members of the workshop are at such varying levels of talent and experience and knowledge that you're not getting equal feedback from all of them. And so I think that, you know, finding the right people to give you feedback is also pretty wise. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I agree because as much as my mom loved my book, <laughs> she's, not, she's not an author and, you know, I'm her baby. So yes. she's going to love anything I create. <laughs> I say the same thing about my husband, you know, he'll, he'll read something and he'll be my biggest cheerleader, but he's not my audience. Like I'm not mm-hmm. selling to that market. So thank you. But that makes me feel great. But it's, you know, I need somebody who's really going to buy the book who's going to tell me if it's good or bad, you know? Yep, Exactly. Awesome. Well, Tammy, thank you so much. It's been a delight to chat with you on the Make Meaning podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been really enjoyable. I really appreciate it, Lynn. 
Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world. And please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more at makemeaning.org or lynngaladner.com.